So today on the next podcast that the Shadow Board are running, we're delighted to have Hazel Blears with us. Hazel is a former Labour MP. She's currently a board director of the co-op group uh, and during her time in Parliament she had a number of roles, one of which was Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government and also being Chairman of the Labour Party from 2006 to 2007. I believe. It <laughs> seems a long time ago now, but yeah. <laughs> so thank you, first of all, for joining us and telling us a bit more about you. It's going to be really interesting to hear this. So I suppose, you know, first of all, that's your formal introduction, but a bit more about you. You know, what, what's life like now? Now you're sort of out of the kind of Westminster bubble. We'll come on to that in a second, but what's life like for you currently? I'm extremely well. Um, apart from the terrible rain that's been tippling down all day, um, I have found out that it does rain quite a lot in the Lake District. Um, my husband does say to me, Hazel, the clue's in the name. It's the Lake District. <laughs> and in order to have lakes, it has to rain. Um, but I'm really, really enjoying being up here. I've been living in Kendall now for the last two and a half years, uh, having left Salford, the place of my birth and uh, where I've worked for you know, 40, 50 years. So it's quite a big change for me um, but I absolutely love it and I would say that the welcome that I've received from people up here has been amazing um, it's been warm open uh, welcoming and I, I nearly feel part of the community I think it'll take a little bit longer yet but I've really settled well good and, and obviously since 2015 and stepping down as an MP what have you got involved with because obviously you haven't just sort of you know kept quiet you've, you've been busy with things what have you been up to well, throughout my life, really. Um, I started off as a local councillor in Salford. I was doing that for nearly 10 years uh, before I even became a Member of Parliament. And everything that I've done in my life has really been about local people and about empowering them to take control over their own lives, over their communities. I have a, a kind of fundamental belief that ordinary people are capable of extraordinary things if you give them the right backup and support to be able to do it. Um, so that's co coloured all of my politics um, and also my working life. I mean, I was a lawyer before I became a politician. I worked in local government, um, so help people in, in communities there. So when you leave politics, you don't suddenly disappear. All those values that you had about trying to, to really change the world I suppose uh, you try and find different ways of doing that so uh, the things that I'm doing now I am a, a group board director at the co-op and have been doing that for nearly five years so cash your mind back five years and the co-op group nearly disappeared down a black hole you know it was a real disaster area and we've done a really big turnaround and the co-op now is trading better than it has for the last 25 years. It's doing amazing work in the community and um, campaigning on modern slavery and loneliness and isolation, all of those things. So fabulous place. Um, it's a bit like substitute politics for me, but uh, it's also a very commercial role mm -hmm. um, because obviously if we don't succeed on the co-op, um, we can't do the community things that we want to do. So I really like that combination of um, being commercial, being very you know businesslike, but also having values, and that for me is the, the the kind of I suppose that's my DNA. So the other things that I do, I chair the social investment business, which is based in London but operates nationwide, and that provides finance for community groups, co-ops, voluntary organisations. And uh, we've just won the £200 million fund from government to tackle serious youth violence. Um, and knife crime and gun crime are really big issues, so that's taken up a lot of my time at the moment. And I do some things up in uh, Cumbria now, which is great. 
Um, I'm on the um, partners support group for Well Whitehaven. So all about regenerating Myrus and the surrounding area, um, trying to tackle some of those big issues mm. around health, education, um, lack of aspiration and, and giving young people ambition, young people like yourselves, Brilliant. ambition that they can do uh, great things. And um, uh, an Alzheimer's trustee, because my mum unfortunately died um, a few years ago and she had dementia. And I'm a trustee of Carlisle Youth Zone as well. So I've got, I've got lots and lots of things going on. So Keeping yourself very great. busy then indeed. My well. husband would say too busy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of what you're doing now, but where did it all start? Where did you grow up? You know, what were you interested in? Where, where did you go to school? Where are you from, basically? What, what, where have you come from? I'm really, really, really from Salford. Um, born and brought up in um, a two-up, two-down terraced house. Um, we didn't have a bathroom, so we had a tin bath on a Sunday night in front of the fire. Um, my dad used to get the water first because he was going to work. So, <laughs> and because I was the youngest, I've got an older brother, um, I used to get it last. So um, that's, that's where we're from. But my mum and dad are amazing people, or my mum was until she died. And they were kind of, I like to think of them as Kennedy's generation because mm. it was after the war and, you know, Kennedy was the new president of America and, um, you know, he was a Democrat and bold and principled and wanted to do the right thing. And he was quite a big influence um, on, on my parents. And so they absolutely believed that education, education, education was the way to success. Long before Tony Blair ever thought of it, my mum and dad were banging on about education. Um, they had it first. <laughs> they, they had it absolutely first. Um, I sometimes think that if you know my mum was around today, um, being a mum, she would have been a tiger mum because um, she was really fought for her kids. And uh, they left school at 14, mum and dad, um, didn't have the chance to do further education, let alone higher education. And my mum was brilliant at um, drawing and painting, and she won a scholarship to the Royal Academy in London. Couldn't take it, no money, no background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she painted all her life. She loved poetry, she loved music, she loved beauty. Um, and she was an inspiration, absolute inspiration. Um, and my dad in different ways, um, you know. But my mum used to say, and I'll never forget this, she, she used to say, if you work hard, the world's your oyster. You can beat anybody. You're as good as anybody else. You can achieve amazing things. But what was important was she always prefaced it by, if you work hard. It didn't come mm-hmm. just because you expected it to fall into your lap. Mm-hmm. Um, so growing up in a Salford like that, uh, it's quite a, you know, it's, it's a tough place. You have to be resilient. You have to keep going. Um, but you can, you can actually get places. Um, and um, I've probably told this story before, but um, they came to, to make a film in my street where we lived. So two up, two down terraced houses, you know, in these today, it would be seen to be a bit rough, but my mum and dad were very proud. Um, and they came to film A Taste of Honey, which was written by Sheila Delaney. She was 18 when she wrote the book. Um, it was a very provocative film. It dealt with mixed race relationships uh, gay relationships, um, teenage pregnancy. This is in the 1960s. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, it, was, it wasn't just a kitchen sink drama. It was mm. kind of like really mm. in your face. Yeah. Very um, controversial. And they came to film it in our street. And they wanted to have some um, children at the beginning for the screenshots and stuff. You know, um, They wanted to do a song. So my mum, being the proud working class mum that she was, um, she put us in our best clothes, whip week clothes, um, sent us out. And the director took 
one look at us and he said, there's no way, I can't film these kids. You know, they look too clean and they're, and they're, and they're, they're too smart. Um, so he sent us back in and my mum was really disappointed because she wanted her kids to be in the film. And so, you know, she, she was very good at improvising. She put a bit of smut on our noses. Uh, she got our old clothes out, a few rips in the knees, you know, uh, yeah. sent us back out to the director. We're in the film. <laughs> and my brother's part of the singing and all of that. Um, and so that for me kind of like sums up, um, I suppose, where I get my values from, that you're as good as anybody else. It doesn't come easy. You have to work hard and keep going. Um, there's room for, there's not just room, it's essential to have beauty in your life as well as hard graft. Um, and, you know, never, ever give up. Because if you really believe in something, you can make it happen. So when, you, when you've got that behind you, it doesn't actually matter that you haven't got a lot of money. It's, it's that belief and drive to, to succeed, basically. It's to succeed, but it's also to succeed not for, particularly for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's for what you can do, yeah. um, which sounds a bit, a bit trite because everybody wants to succeed for themselves. But you're kind of ambitious for yourself, but you're ambitious for your community. And you're ambitious, you know, we were brought up to be ambitious for our class, you know, because it was very difficult um, at those times, you know, I, I went on and um, I was the first person to go to university in my family. It's a bit of a cliche now, but in those days it was it was quite tough. That's actually a nice segue between that. So where, you know, where did you go and what did you study when you went? Um, well, w- w- when I went to university, I went to uh, Trent in Nottingham um, and I studied law, I took a law degree. And the reason I did that, again, it's a bit of a story, um, is when I was 13, I had a a moment of political awakening and I can I can pinpoint it to an incident and you can't often do that in your life um, but me and my mum were in Manchester town centre shopping on a Saturday like girls do with their mum around um, the shops you know clothes makeup whatever and um, I saw this man in Market Street as it was then and I suppose we we'd call him a homeless person today and then he'd be a tramp um, and he was rummaging in a, in, a, in a waste basket for something to eat. And I, just, I was just, like, really shocked. Um, and I said to my mum, 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 what, what's he doing? You know, why is he looking for something to eat when we live in a rich country? And I said, it's not fair. You know, it's really not fair. And I was upset, very upset about what, what I could see going on. And she said to me, Hazel, whoever told you that life was fair? She said, it's not but you can do something about it. And probably that was my real kind of awareness. It yeah, it, it really did spark it, that you, you could do something to change that, um, and that the world was unfair, it was unequal, not everybody had the same chances. And so then I thought, um, later on, you know, I'll go and be a lawyer, and then I could speak up for people and be their champion and their advocate and be on their side and make a difference. Um, and so it was really hard, um, actually, uh, not doing the law degree, that was fine, you know, got a two-one, great, great stuff. But then getting a job was virtually impossible. Um, coming from my background, we didn't know anybody, you know, we didn't even know anybody who was a magistrate, let alone a solicitor or in a professional capacity. Um, and I wrote 300 letters to try and get articles, because you had to do two years articles after you got your degree. Didn't get a single interview. Had to sign on the doll. Um, out to work for six months. And then um, finally, um, my, dad, my dad worked in a bakery and his bakery got taken over by a multinational firm. So, and the multinational firm had a big legal account with like the best firm in Manchester. And mm-hmm. um, so my dad's dad, uh, boss's, boss's boss managed to get me an interview with this firm. 
which was like my first foot in the door. And um, so I went for this interview and it was on the top floor of the poshest office building I'd ever been in in my life with the senior partner, half moon glasses, looking at me (laughs) over his half moon glasses from his very tall seat. Um, And we went through the interview and I'd got a good degree. I'd got um, really good postgraduate results from the College of Law, you know. um, And he said to me, halfway through the interview, he said to me, going rather well this isn't it Miss Blears and do you know when you're in those circumstances and you can feel your heart yeah. pounding your chest <laughs> and you think I'm gonna get this job it was like it was, I, sometimes it, it was like being in that film a chorus line you know where they're all lined up and they get chosen from the audition and they think I'm gonna get this job it was right. just like that yeah. so my heart's pounding and then he said to me remind me Miss Blears he says what does your father do with the firm Ooh. and there's that moment and I was really very shocked and I said, oh, I said, um, uh, he works in the factory. I said, he's a fitter. And then there was a silence. And he had this leather folder in front of him. I've never forgotten it the whole of my life. He closed the leather folder and he said, thank you, Miss Pleas. I think I've heard enough. The lift's there. And he dismissed me from his room. Um, and as I got into the lift, um, like any young person, I was kind of really upset, burst into tears. I wasn't crying for myself, but I thought, how dare you insult my family, uh, you know, the, the community that I come from, the person that I am. And if that didn't drive me into the arms of politics to want to do something about it, then nothing would. And once again, you segued very nicely into the politics side of things. Um, so... I suppose, you know, really interesting to hear about how you first got into it in terms of your becoming an MP for Salford. And I suppose then we can lead on to some of the things that you've done in your time. Yeah. Great. feels a bit like this is your life, this. You know? well, You're so, going to be yeah. getting the book out shortly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I also became a lawyer and... Um, I, Eventually, I was lucky enough to get a job, uh, actually, in my own uh, local authority, in, in local government, article to the town clerk. Um, and in some ways, it was it was a better experience than being in private practice because it was much broader. Um, I did work in private practice for a time, um, and uh, I did some criminal legal aid work. Uh, again, I've had some experiences there, but I won't go through that long story for you. Um, but local government was kind of um, very important to me um, because you, you got to deal with housing, with education, um, a much broader span of issues than you would in a, in a small firm. Then I joined my trade union. I joined my trade union before I joined the Labour Party. Partly, I suppose, my dad had been a shop steward. Um, he was a trade unionist. And um, we'd often talk about politics and things at, at the dinner table. You know, I, my family were an educated working class family mm-hmm. and concerned about the world as well as concerned about their own lives. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we didn't have television. And so we used to talk. Um, so I joined my trade union. I became a branch secretary. And then there was a guy in the union who said to me, have you thought about joining the Labour Party? So that was my route in to my own local branch Labour Party. And um, most of the members were like over 60. I think I was the youngest <laughs> person in the room. A bit of young blood. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. So as you are at that um, age, and hopefully as you continue to be, um, I was very idealistic, I was passionate, I wanted to change the world like tomorrow. I wasn't even prepared to wait till next week. <laughs> I probably got on, got on a lot of people's nerves who'd been around a long time, <laughs> banging the table and making speeches and things. Um, and uh, then somebody said to me, um, you know, everybody can spot a, a bit of enthusiasm. Um, have you thought about standing for the council? 
So um, I stood for the council in an unwinnable seat. Um, unsurprisingly, I lost, but it was great experience, yeah. how to run a campaign, how to mobilise people behind you, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then I stood, I think, uh, another time and lost again. And then I stood the third time and I won. Um, succeed, and, you know. Yeah. At first, don't succeed. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, best bit of advice I ever got in my life, and it's actually something I give to other people is just keep going yeah. um, because life is full of ups and downs and you know it's never an easy straightforward linear path but you just keep going um, and you get there you do get there and other people fall by the wayside and you're left standing mm-hmm. um, so so local councillor um, loved that really um, and again sort of being the lawyer meant that when people came to my surgeries I could advocate for them I knew routes through I could get things done sort out the parking you know um, get people into decent housing um, and I became a school governor so I was quite active in education as well um, great outlet for me and we did that for eight years um, on Salford Council um, I also helped to run my council for voluntary service. I chaired that for a while. Um, I've always kind of done voluntary work as well as working. Um, that's why probably my friends and family don't see enough of me. <laughs> um, but I've always wanted to give something back. So then somebody said to me uh, in the party, got quite no, well known in the, in the Labour Party, why don't you stand for Parliament if you ever thought about standing for Parliament? Um, of course I had. <laughs> By the time you've been in 10 years, you know, you're thinking, right, so how do I do what I'm doing, but on a bigger um, canvas mm-hmm. and make yeah. some bigger decisions? So it was another long journey. Um, I suppose I feel so passionately about equality because I've never really had any patrons. I never really knew anybody important. So I just had myself. Yeah. So first seat, I thought, um, against Neil Hamilton in Tatton, in the wilds of Cheshire, in true blue Tory territory. Um, and obviously, there was 26,000 Tory majority. Um, I was never going to win it. The guy who was my agent said, we're going to treat it like a key marginal, Hazel. You have to have a month off work. We're going to campaign 12 hours a day. We're going to do the best propaganda and leaflets you've ever seen. He was an XMP. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it was, it was like being blooded, you know. By the time you came through that, you really knew what a campaign was about, um, which was brilliant. Uh, at the count, Neil Hamilton nearly blighted my whole career because he said in his um, acceptance speech, uh, Hazel has fought such a brilliant campaign. I really hope she gets a safe Labour seat one day. So I thought being endorsed by Neil Hamilton wasn't exactly a good move. Um, but it was nice to, to be recognised. Um, then after that, I fought Berry South. This is like five years later. Um, I was a candidate for three years. I had to give up my job to stand because they brought in the rules that you couldn't work in local government and be a candidate. Um, And I ran a whole series of big campaigns then because it was a key marginal seat. Had all the ministers and MPs down to campaign with me. Tony Blair campaigned with me. David Blunkett, everybody. Um, And everybody thought we were going to win. And um, in the last few weeks, there was a few incidents, you know, there was the infamous Neil Kinnock speech at the rally and all that kind of thing. You just felt it begin to slip away a little bit. Um, But at the count, um, the Tory MP came with a losing speech in his pocket. You know, he's a nice guy. Um, And um, we lost after four recounts by, I think it was 600 votes out of 70,000. And... um, they announced the result about half past four in the morning. And um, 
I've never forgotten it because, again, that's a real test of character. Yeah, that you've feeling got, of disappointment. Yeah, and well, absolutely, your, your world's crumbled. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to give up my job, was out yeah, of work, of had no seat, the whole thing. The amount of time and sort of commitment it's taken. Three years, yeah, yeah. three years of my yeah. life. Every weekend, every night, canvassing, campaigning, the whole lot. Um, and you just see it like, oh, but you're a leader. And you can't afford to kind of collapse at that moment. There's just no way. Um, so you have to go on the stage. And they said, what are you going to do with your time? I said, I think I'll be doing a bit more gardening. Uh, <laughs> and then we came back. And I had the most brilliant campaign team. I mean, young people who were, like, totally dedicated to me. And we'd arranged a party because we thought we were going to win. Um, so we got the pies in and the beer and everything else. And I'm walking along the street with my mum. And I said, mum, I don't think I can do this. I just don't think I can I can find anything in me to um, sort of you know be happy and cheery and jolly. Mm. And she said to me, Hazel, she was just an amazing woman. She said, Remember how steel is tempered. And I thought, what is she on about? You know, this is like five o'clock in the morning, I had the worst day of my life. What is my mother going on about? And she said, Just remember how steel is tempered. I said, What do you mean? She said, It's heated to a really, really high temperature. She said, and then it's plunged into icy cold water and its edge is sharpened she said hazel you've just been tempered (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like you know completely spellbound at this moment um and at that point i knew i could go back to this party i could make a great rousing speech i could tell them we'd be back next time and we'd win the seat because she'd found something that just gave me that extra push and you meant it as well obviously absolutely a few years later i guess you yeah then i got my own seat where i was born and brought up um like to think god was saving it for me um he was testing me out in these other places and then i was um elected to salford which not many people get the chance these days to represent where they're from i think it's really extra special you live there you catch the same buses you use the same shops you know what the schools are like you know you just and and you're kind of in and running you know straight away Mm -hmm. because you absolutely know your community inside out so fantastic so you're now in government hazel you've entered into a tony blair government landslide victory how did it feel and what were your first impressions of the place it was amazing I, I can hardly describe it because when you've been working on something for the best part of 15 years, you know, it wasn't my sole aim. I was enjoying what I was doing anyway. Um, but you're working towards a goal. Um, and when you've got that in mind, and it's been a bit of a rocky road getting there, um, then the day that you turn up in Parliament with your pass and they let you in, <laughs> you can't believe they're letting you in, um, was amazing. There were um, 101 Labour women elected at the 1997 election, the biggest number of women ever. Wow. Um, a lot of them were on all women shortlists. Uh, I wasn't, I had to do it the hard way, I had men against me. Um, but nevertheless, there were 100 women there. And it was quite funny because um, it shook the whole place up. I mean, it was like an earthquake. And quite a lot of people thought that we were all secretaries, so they didn't realise you were a member of parliament, so <laughs> they, they had to kind of like get used to this influx to that, that, of women. Yeah. Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there was a lot to learn because um, you're in a completely new environment. You've never made a speech in the chamber, which is quite scary. Um, and you have to make your maiden speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made my maiden speech, I think, on uh, the debate where Anne Widdecombe um, was accusing Michael Howard uh, and, and there was a big row between the two of them, so it was quite dramatic. So unlike most maiden speeches, the chamber was quite full. 
Um, and I waited from quarter past two until ten past nine in the evening to be called by the speaker to make my maiden speech. Yeah. And I hadn't realised, but and the speaker told me afterwards, because he's now quite a good friend, he said, um, you could have asked to go to the toilet. And I, I didn't know that you could ask to leave the chamber. <laughs> it's the simple so things that you don't I realize. sat there for seven hours waiting to make my speech without going for a cup of tea or anything. So um, I, I did learn after that. Um, so, so fantastic. And then um, I spent quite a lot of time then kind of like working my way up um, because unlike quite a lot of MPs, I hadn't been a special advisor, didn't have any patrons, didn't have any important people who were going to help me through um, as ever, which I think is actually a good thing. I think there's too many people come through what I call the transmission bell into politics, right. never done anything else. Yeah. You know, work for a minister, get a safe seat, Career fast track to the cabinet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did some research and in 1979, only 3% of MPs came through that kind of route. At the last election, 26% and rising. I think it's one of the reasons why the public are, you know, disillusioned and mm-hmm. don't feel connected mm-hmm. to their politicians uh, in many ways. So, but I didn't have any of that. Um, so I had to do quite a lot of hard graft. Um, I was on John Prescott's campaign team for a while. That was an experience. I was quite glad to uh, <laughs> to get that bit of my life done. I think, um, although as a campaigner, I mean, John was really, really good, and I learned a lot. Um, but again, it was a bit too similar to what I've been doing. I then became Alan Milburn's um, parliamentary private secretary, brackets bag carrier, close brackets, um, which is like the very first rung on the ministerial ladder. He was Secretary of State for Health. I was passionate about the health service. Um, I chaired my own community health council in in Salford. And um, that taught me a lot um, because you're basically the assistant to the minister. So you're watching how he does the business, um, preparing him for questions, making sure that other MPs are supporting you, getting a group around you, all of that. It's, it's like the mechanics of politics that you learn um, and you learn about relationships because unless you've got relationships in political life, then when push comes to sho- shove, and it always does, when times are tough, you haven't got people to call them. As we've seen recently. Exactly right. I, one of the things that, that um, Theresa May, I think, you know, really didn't get was that you can be the most brilliant minister, do your papers, do your red boxes, make your decisions. If you haven't been around the tea room and you know, bought people a cup of tea and a bacon sandwich or a drink, a drink in the bar, then you haven't got that hinterland. So I always had a really good group of friends, um, quite a lot of women friends, but also um, male friends as well. So that was always supportive. Nobody ever believes you when you tell them the hours you do. Um, so you're there kind of um, Monday to Thursday, um, leaving home Monday morning, getting back home probably 11 o'clock at night on Thursday, um, constituency day on a Friday, campaign day on a Saturday, Sunday, day off if you're lucky, catch, um, catch up with family maybe, yeah, mm-hmm. and, um, and then back on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, from then, um, just whizzed through, um, I got to be made a junior health minister, that was my first role, and that was mainly through getting to know the health ministers, um, and then I was public health minister, loved that, banned tobacco advertising, brought in five a day, um, looked after the dentists and opticians, great to make a difference on public health. Um, and then... Um, the next reshuffle, I got called into number 10. And you always know that if it's a junior post, the Prime Minister rings you up on the telephone usually, and he's very nice to you on the telephone, and you're really pleased. But if he calls you into number 10, you're going to get something a bit more kind of serious. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I'll never forget, I was walking down the yellow corridor in number 10 um, towards the cabinet office room where he was doing his reshuffle. And the chief whip was stood on one side and she said to me, you're going to love this, Hazel. It's going to be fantastic. I thought, oh God, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm I'm nearly, I'm I'm kind of like skipping at this point. So I get into the room with with Tony Blair and he says to me, Hazel, um, you've done really well in the health department, he said, um, and I'd like you to be our very first um, police minister, woman police minister, because there hadn't been a woman police minister before that. And I was so delighted, not kind of like, you know, for the role in government, but because the biggest issue in Salford was crime and antisocial behaviour. We were known as the place with the most um, serious and organised crime gangs in the country. Wow. Um, you know, I lived in the inner city. Um, very often, kids growing up, the only role model they had was a criminal father. Um, and they were easily sucked into that world. Um, and, and then didn't finish their education, didn't have the chance to have a decent life. So the prospect, um, I've always been quite a tough person, so the prospect of locking up some of the bad guys um, and then showing the example to young people that that is no way to live your future, that there's a better way of living your future, um, was absolutely fantastic for me. Um, and I'm only small, I'm four foot eleven. I spent the next three years of my life dealing with 52 chief constables who were all over six foot five, mm-hmm. and a crick in my neck. Um, and they were very sceptical um, of me when they first met me um, because I was a woman, first woman. I'm only small. I'm from Salford. Um, and I said to them that I wanted to change policing fundamentally, from doing things to people to working with the community. Once you got the community on side, it was like multiplying the police service by 10 because they would give you better intelligence. They know where the bad guys are. You build a relationship with them. They're part of your um, ability to, to change the balance of power in a community away from the criminals and towards the forces of, of light and reason. And so I said to them, I want you to make relationships with the um, schools, with the shopkeepers, um, with, with the community people, everybody. And I remember this um, chief constable coming to me and he said, all this stuff about neighbour policing minister, he said, building relationships. What do you think we are? Relate marriage guidance. He says, with the cops, we get the bad guys and we lock them up. Yeah. So we're on a three-year journey. Yeah. <laughs> Skeptical is an understatement. But after the three years, I will never, ever forget that, you know, neighbourhood policing actually worked because you had a neighbourhood team in every community. They knew everybody. Um, They were in the local mosque. They got intelligence. You know, they were in the youth club. They knew exactly what was going on. And so, surprise, surprise, the street robbery numbers came down. The burglary numbers came down. The car crime came down. Everything the cops were measured on in terms of their success rate was going really, really well. And at the end of three years, at the ACPO conference, the Association of Chief Police Officers, they came to see me again. And they said, do you know, Minister, this neighbourhood policing, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, You know, look at the figures. Aren't we doing well? And And I just said to them, do you know, you're all doing brilliantly. Fantastic. I'm so proud of all of you. And I could see them going, like this. You're even bigger than the six foot five. You know, they were all like glowing. Um, and it reminded me, somebody once told me, I think it was um, Harry Truman in America, he used to have a sign above his desk. And it said, um, It's amazing what you can get done if you don't mind who takes the credit. 
and it was absolutely right. We had a oh. whole culture yeah. change in the police. I changed the pay system, so the guys who got the most money were the ones who were on the beat, not the ones with the guns and the helicopters. Um, and we got more women into policing, um, which was a dramatic change. Um, the success framework for them was changed completely. We had the College of Policing, we got graduate entry into the police. I mean, it was a complete culture change programme. I absolutely loved it. Then the Prime Minister decided that he would add on to my duties counter-terrorism. And so I was the police and counter-terrorism minister um, at the time of the 7-7 bombings. And that was life-changing um, in terms of what had happened to our country. And I, I think the most shocking thing for me was that young people who'd been born and brought up in Britain with our values in our education system hated us so much that they weren't just prepared to kill other people, prepared to kill themselves um, in, in the act. And I think that that just really shocked Britain because we never ever expected it. We perhaps expected it from abroad. We didn't expect it from people who were living on our streets and in our communities. Um, and meeting the victims of 7-7 was, you know, just devastating really um, for everybody. So um, that was a period of my life of a bit of reflection. And then Tony Blair sent me out around the country uh, as part of the response to 7-7 to visit every single Muslim community and find out, you know, what were the reasons why a, a tiny minority, but a, 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 some people in the community had turned against us to this extent and what was going on in our education system, our values, our communities to try and change that. And then he put me in charge of the Prevent programme to try and um, stop people becoming radicalised and becoming extremists. Um, again, really, really tough task. Um, and I absolutely love doing the work um, because there's nothing more important than keeping your country safe. It's the first responsibility and duty of any government. And um, I took through a lot of contested legislation, um, you know, the control orders, the hardline um, anti-terrorist legislation. Um, and I did the last all-night sitting that Parliament had um, ever on my legislation, and, uh, which was quite an experience, but I'll tell you about that another time. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but uh, police yeah. and counter-terrorism was, was probably a really big challenge. So I'm sure we could talk for a long time about your life as an MP. Um, and that might have to come on to a second follow-up podcast. But a bit about you then, Hazel, as well. How do you like to relax and unwind from things? The stress of the job, both then and you know, even, even now. How do you like to yeah, just get a bit of your own time? Well, um, <laughs> when I was in Parliament, I used to ride a motorbike. Um, but again, I'm only small, so it was quite difficult. And um, I, really, I really did it because my husband's always been a mad motorcyclist um, and real enthusiast. And so I think it was when I was 40, I decided I was sick of riding pillion. So I would take my test and get a license. And I did, amazingly. Um, and I took my bike to uh, Spain, to France. Um, and then when I was a bit older, probably about 10 years later, I dropped it twice. And it was quite a big bike. It was a Virago 500. Um, and I'd had it specially lowered with its shock absorbers mm -hmm. cut down and goodness knows what else. But I dropped it on the floor. And I realised it was too heavy for me to pick up. So I had to wait until a guy in a car came and helped me pick the bike up. And I thought, perhaps, perhaps my motorbiking days are finished. So, um, but it was, it was great fun. Um, and quite, then you moved on to something else, I guess? Um, well, I've always um, loved dancing um, since I was little. Um, when I was little, I used to do t tap dancing um, and ballet, like a lot of little girls. Um, and um, my mum and dad were great ballroom dancers, ballroom and Latin. I mean, absolutely fantastic. 
And so I've always loved to dance. Again, my husband Michael, poor man, <laughs> not a great enthusiast, but you know, drag around various um, ballrooms. And um, now we're having our first kind of long holiday that we've ever had because we've always been too busy working. And we're going to South America in um, October. And so um, we're, we're learning to tango, Argentine tango. Wow. And tonight I'm actually going to a class in Carlisle where Excellent. they do tango. <laughs> there you go, there you go. So what drew you to Cumbria? Like originally, so obviously you live here and I've been here for a couple of years, but what, what kind of made you feel like you could come here and make a difference that you are doing? Well, first of all, I think when you've been um, a public figure in your community for so long, um, you do need to move on uh, because everybody thinks you still are. And then when you have a successor, it's difficult for them. And so I knew that, you know, we we would want to move. Um, My dad's still living in Salford and uh, he's 90 this year. He's an amazing guy. And... um, I only wanted to be about an hour or so, maybe an hour and a half max away from him because I go every week and my husband's mum, she's in Stockport, so um, that we thought didn't want to be any further away than that. And uh, we used to come up to Cumbria quite often, walk in, and in fact we had our very first weekend away um, before we were married um, up in Cumbria. So um, we knew it a bit and I, I just loved the landscape as well because when you live in the inner city, you know, I was surrounded by 39 tower blocks and we lived just down the road from the trauma hospital and the police helicopters. <laughs> so, you know, the sirens were a backdrop to my life. Mm-hmm. And so now I wake up and I, we, we live in a little cottage in Kendall, which is beautiful. Um, just 10 minutes walk from the town centre. We can walk to the pub, we can walk to the brewery arts centre, go to the pictures. Um, and our local, which is a new union, um, is, it's just one camera pub of the year. Um, which and Phil who runs it is brilliant so I'll give him a plug mm-hmm. and um, now I, I wake up to birds singing and a view of hills and that is just so different so we absolutely love it. Fantastic and in terms of getting involved with Beck PC I, I actually read online somewhere on your on your one of your pages that a, a journalist once described you as a ferociously effective networker is that perhaps what drew you to getting involved with Beck BC and feeling like you could really bring some qualities that you learned from your past into our business world, basically. Yeah, I think what I found particularly attractive um, about BetBC is that it's a collection of completely different people, um, big, small, um, young, old, different backgrounds, men, women, and yet they're kind of united by an absolute passion um, to make a difference and to make a difference through business which, again, I think when we started talking and right at the beginning of this chat that we're having, I said, what really motivates me is that combination of business and commerciality together with values. And everybody that I've met at Beck BC shares that. Um, they absolutely want to get on. They want to, you know, they want to make money. Um, they want to be able to have a really good thriving business, but they absolutely want to put something back. So one of the first things I heard about at Beck BC was the schools program and the mentoring and the idea of going into school and um, talking to people, which is something I've done all my life and say, you know, this is what I do. You, you can be like this. You can do this which takes me back to my mum, if you work hard, the world's your oyster, you can do anything you like. And I just think Beck BC sums that up for me. Um, it's also full of quite clever people. Some of the innovation that I've seen from some of the um, companies has been quite stunning. 
and very often from quite small beginnings and you get the kernel of an idea and then it sparks something else and because it's a network you can always think right I need somebody else to help me with that that might be my comms it might be my um, legal advice it might be some finance advice um, you know some people business it's like it's like a big pond and so wherever you want to fish you'll find somebody who can help you and I think part of my passion for Beck BC is to say right I want the big guys in this um, economy because it's a, it is a it is an, an economic entity I think up here that I've discovered um, you know with the nuclear bit manufacturing all of this these are big players and I just want Beck BC to be treated properly as an equal and a real asset in that ecosystem of business up in Cumbria. And if I can help that to happen, that's what I want to try and do. What I think is really um, special about um, Beck BC is that they've got these commercial imperatives, and rightly so, but actually it's underpinned with values. And one of my passions is to try and make sure that we are measuring the impact that we're each making. Um, Because in the past, I think there's been too much emphasis on CSR, Um, charity work, philanthropy. I'll look at some of the big organisations in in this community, you know, and they've been very generous, but they've kind of given out checks to organisations and then that lasts so long and then it disappears. So what was the difference you made? What was the impact that you... How did you change people's lives um, for the long term? So I have this thing that's really about doing good is good business. And what it's about is moving from CSR and charity work and philanthropy. It'll always have its place. uh, But moving from that to using your mainstream business model to do good. So who do you employ? Where do you buy your goods and services? How do you develop your products? How do you do your communications? How do you get to market? And really thinking smartly about how you do that. But as you're doing that, you're making an impact. So who do you employ, right? Every company that employed one ex-offender... Right? The biggest things that stop people reoffending are a home and a job. You can give them a job. Every time that person reoffends and goes back to jail, it costs me and you as taxpayers £30,000 a year. You know, what's wrong with giving somebody a job, a second chance in life? You know, if, if they mess it up, maybe they don't get a third or a fourth chance, but you give them a second chance. And not only are you improving that person's life and their families, you're saving money to the British taxpayer. You know, for me, it's just like makes sense. And once you move from CSR into using your mainstream business model to do good and you embed it in your DNA, then when times get hard, it's usually the charity budget that gets cut. That won't get cut because it's just what you do, right? On the co-op now, our strap line, co-op, it's what we do. You know, when I get to nuclear, it's what we do. (laughs) Then, you know, we really will have made um, a culture change. In, in all of this, because I, I think that most, I suppose this is my fundamental belief in life, most people want to do the right thing. You'll always get people who are on the edges who don't, but the vast majority of people of every race, every country, they want to make a difference, they want to do the right thing. And I think it's the job of people like myself who've had some experience, how do I make that easy for you? And how do we measure it so that it's genuinely, it's not just what you're claiming, but it's absolutely got integrity in, in the measurement of the impact. And now, you know, impact is being talked about in every boardroom across the world. It's like flavour of the month. Um, And I took the original social value legislation through Parliament, one of the last things I did, and I thought it would be a bit of private members' legislation, maybe get put on a shelf somewhere, and now it's become front and centre 
um, to the commercial aspirations of you know mo- most organisations. And I'm waiting at the moment with fingers crossed for a government consultation in September that's going to strengthen the Act. Um, and, you know, it, it feels som- sometimes like my life's come full circle and that even when you're not in a position of formal power, you can make a, a big difference if you're single-minded and you just push on. And I suppose it brings me back to that bit, just keep going. I think that's a really, really important point. And I think one thing to to kind of pick up on as well is it's not just the impact of each individual company it's the collective impact so I think where Beck Business Cluster potentially is and can do more is leveraging that collective that collective impact so it's not it's lots of different companies working together especially when you're looking at SMEs small companies saying about employing people maybe we take it back to apprenticeships some small companies just can't employ apprentices because literally maybe three of them in a company you know but if a couple of companies of three people got together and employed an apprentice collectively they could then circle them around the companies and and that gives them much more of a a grounding to maybe get a job elsewhere or potentially a job with the companies they're in so I think it is just an important point that that, that's really really good and I think where the cluster comes in is that collective impact and it's obviously part of the Sutterfield Limited social impact strategy. I think that's that really, really good. I, th- I think that's absolutely spot on. And what I'm talking to people about at the moment is how do we have a whole systems approach to this? Um, because there's no point in Sellafield doing their bit and um, the PPP partners doing their bit and the NDA doing their bit. And then one of us is measuring apples, the other one of us is measuring pears. Yeah, you know, yeah. we've got no coherence. So I, I think that if you're going to make the maximum impact from this economy, then actually it's whole systems, it's everybody um, operating to similar principles. You know, it'll be different in different businesses, but what Beck BC can do is help to be some of that glue across that. And your point about apprenticeships is really powerful. I remember 15 years ago, 20 years ago in Salford, we had a real problem with construction apprentices because construction firms were going bust. So people would get halfway through the apprenticeship and not be able to complete it. And so we did a a shared apprenticeship scheme. So no matter what happened, you as the apprentice would get your apprenticeship done and everybody in the industry just stepped forward and volunteered to do that. And so, dare I say, it's going to be a Tony Blair thing, this. We achieve more together than we do alone. Um, But it's absolutely fundamental, isn't it? Yeah. Fantastic, and, and I hope I'm going to be able to really you know, push that agenda on because it'll make such a difference to this community. Hazel, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic insight into a bit about you, a bit about your uh, life as an MP, and obviously about all the important work that you're doing now. Really appreciate that. We've had to skim over it some of it quite fast, but I'm sure we can come to it on a second time and do sort of part two at some stage. But yeah, I really appreciate your time and sharing those thoughts with us. I'd be absolutely delighted. It's a, a pleasure to talk to two bright, clever, enthusiastic <laughs> young men. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. So much. Thank you.